Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We got interest rates rising. We know that. Uh, it's been terrible for the fixed income market across the board. Uh, and a big part of that is the mortgage market. So when we want to talk, you know, what's going on in the MBS, that's mortgage-backed securities, we bring in Erica Edelberg, MBS strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. What is a super Strava biker? I don't know. I know that I probably put too much too many miles on my bike so okay and, and most no, that's awesome get paul's now. a big peloton guy but you actually move on your bicycle uh this time of year i might be on something called zwift which is inside but we feel like we're moving because it's like in a cartoon world with other people so <laughs> ah yeah. it's in the metaverse it's, it's in, right the, in the yeah, metaverse exactly much, yeah. all right erica so again i you know we look at i and go to give us a snapshot of all the uh, indexes out there uh, and just in the fixed income world like the equity world just read everywhere talk to us about how the mortgage-backed security market's been behaving in 2022 well, um, there there probably aren't enough uh, big words to describe it, but basically, it's it's having its worst year ever by a, a significant margin, like at minus fourteen percent. At some point in the middle of last month, we were approximately ten times worse than the mortgage market had ever been year to date. Wow! Um, and that's what happens when you have a bear market, because uh, a lot of that is really just driven by interest rates, which have turned around a little bit recently. But some of that is driven by spread widening, too, as the Fed has stopped buying. And, you know, as there's a lot of volatility in the markets, not, uh, you know, with so much uncertainty around what's going to go on with inflation, et cetera. When was the last time we had a big bear market in mortgage-backed securities? Before I was born, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say. And I'm how, not you young. Know happens when you have a bear market. So, so how does the Fed's... I mean, how does QT play into this? How do rate rises play into this? Because um, didn't Jerome Powell snap at somebody who asked if they were going to start selling MBS at the last press conference? Yeah, well, he, he they, they refused to take that off the table, which is probably wise, especially with some of his uh, colleagues going out and saying we really shouldn't have uh, be supporting a credit market, which I guess they consider mortgage-backed securities to be. So, you know, he has some Fed, uh, other other Fed members jawboning sales. And I think they want to leave that on the table because if mortgage rates aren't responding to their activity, then, you know, they want to probably dangle that out there as a potential to keep spreads relatively wide because they are using mortgage-backed securities and mortgage rates generally sorry, not really mortgage-backed securities, but mortgages uh, rates as a lever to try to slow down the inflation rate by trying to slow down the housing market and all the inflationary aspects that a red-hot housing market cause. Google shows me 7.336% for a 30-year fixed mortgage. 
I think you can shop around and do a little bit better if you need to. But yeah, uh, the effective I rate with my credit rating. But <laughs> you're saying Paul could. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's true. The effective rate that came out from the NBA this morning was 7.06, which is the first time it's topped seven percent. Wow. Other mortgage rates have been showing it above seven percent, um, and that is the first time we've seen that since 2006, where it actually only reached that level. I was looking at these numbers a minute ago, um, briefly in 2006, and then before that, it's really the early 2000s before it was sustained there. And the big difference right now is just that so many homeowners have, you know, a 3% mortgage rate, whereas at that <laughs> point, yep, you included, Matt. Uh, I got it, but I will say that I bought at the absolute top of the market. So I got a good rate, but I paid way too much for my house. Yeah, and, and maybe you're better off getting a worse rate, but, you know, waiting until the housing market comes down a little bit and you can refinance if, if rates ever do turn around. <laughs> this is certainly a big trend in the opposite direction. Even the arms cost a lot. A 10-6 arm is 7.644%. Huh. huh. Yeah, I, I think, again, you can shop around and do a little bit better there, but you know, I'm not a mortgage originator, so I don't know. So, I mean, Erica, talk to us about the – I didn't know anything about really the mortgage-backed securities market until the great financial crisis. Then I, I got – like everybody else, I got very smart very quickly. One of the things I learned is you have to really pay attention to the credit quality of the mortgages in your MBS. Just generally speaking, how do we feel about credit quality out there? The credit quality is by and large stellar compared to before the great financial crisis. Uh, one of the things that triggered that was that there was a lot of subprime lending and a lot of that subprime lending was made in the form of mortgages that reset upwards when rates went up. They were these teaser rates, yep. they were you know pay option arms. And as a result, as soon as rates began to rise a little bit in the mid 2000s, those homeowners yeah. Okay. Good stuff, Erica. Sorry to cut you off. We have to get to an appointment uh, with a, a Fed uh, president. Erica Edelberg, MBS strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, giving us a lowdown on the mortgage market here. Uh, like all the other fixed income markets, really has had a, a very uh, tough uh, 2022. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I guess this uh, Elon Musk Twitter deal is on. That's the news yesterday, $54.20. I'll believe it when I see yeah, you know, on for the, now. Yeah, the signatures on the documents. But let's do a deep dive into how this might all play out. Ed Ludlow, West Coast correspondent for Bloomberg News. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, as does Mandeep Singh, our senior technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Ed, let's start with you. Sure. We're, I guess it's back on, but it is pending a resolution or stay of yeah. these legal issues. Is that going to happen? I haven't heard anything. Yeah, so Musk said that he he reverts to his original offer, $54.20 a share on the exact same terms that were signed between the two parties April 25th. In his letter to Twitter, he said that it's contingent on a stay of legal proceedings, which Twitter has not indicated either way what they're going to do really. All they've said is that they want to close the transaction at that $54.20 price. And, you know, the timing's super interesting. You know, according to one source, legal... Musk's legal team looked at it and they looked at what the judge in the case who was due to preside had said and they didn't fancy their chances. So that's where we're at. But I mean, 
so from the Twitter perspective, the best thing to do would be to go through with the lawsuit and have the courts order Musk to buy it. Because otherwise, if they agree to drop the suit, then he could just back out again. Yeah, I mean, Twitter has at least been consistent. They sued Musk for specific performance of a signed contract. And they have maintained all along that their intent has always been to close the deal at $54.20. The reason I brought all that up is all they said last night was a reiteration that they want to close at $54.20. They didn't say whether they drop legal proceedings. They didn't say whether they accept Musk's latest and reversion of the offer. And so I think that's a really key point that we're waiting for, as well as what on earth these Wall Street bankers will do with the debt. All right, Mandeep, let's say that Elon does buy Twitter. I mean, it needs some work here. I mean, it needs some work in terms of engagement and growing the revenue. And what does he is know? Is he about buying any a twenty-five billion dollar asset for forty-four billion dollars? Yeah, well, with any large M and A, you have to have some sort of premium, right? You're not going to get it at market value or fair price. So, but that's a big, big, big premium. Big premium, and I, I think what's. Uh, kind of not clear yet is how he plans to monetize it. Clearly, he has his ideas around, you know, coming up with a subscription model or just kind of leveraging the franchise uh, as, you know, a super app, which is what he tweeted about yesterday. X. X. So, uh, look, I, I think with Musk, because he's the face of Tesla and Tesla as a company has had a very good year in terms of attracting talent and what they're doing around, you know, supercomputer and robots and just EVs in general. I think what he's looking for is not to go through the trial because uh, there will be bad PR and it's going to hurt Tesla in the end. So really, it's his Does way to Elon pre- Musk really care about bad PR? I mean, if there's one billionaire out there that's gotten bad PR, it is Elon Musk. He's the king of bad PR. Well, they had an AI day on Friday where it was really aimed at getting more talent or attracting talent around AI and machine learning to help him with his supercomputer and, you know, all the things that Tesla is doing. So they really care about talent right now. And I think if he goes through this trial, it's going to bring in a lot of negative publicity. You're talking about 12 or $13 billion of debt. I'm yeah. looking at the FA function on the Bloomberg terminal. Consensus EBITDA is like a billion, a billion three. They can't have that kind of leverage. I mean, what are they thinking? Well, so, I mean, his plans is to get Twitter to 1 billion in daily active users, which is five times where they are now. And uh, look, Yeah, right. And he wants to bring out the Cybertruck by last year. <laughs> That's not going to happen. All right, Ed, know? timing. What's it, when do we think this thing's going to close, actually? Is there anybody venturing the guess? This is what's so fascinating. He wants to do the deal at the original terms of April. If you look at Section 2.2, the closing section, I love that, <laughs> and the articles of closing that were in there, they've all been fulfilled. The Twitter shareholders voted for it. The regulatory waiting periods have passed. That's why I say focus on Twitter and what Twitter does, because they seem to be in control here. If they do stay legal proceedings... I think there's a big portion of the market that says it's reasonable to think this deal could close in days rather than weeks. Um, could happen very quickly. But as I said, maybe we still do go to some somewhat form of trial. Maybe the court has jurisdiction over the closing. Um, right. Dynamic and, and a little bit out of Musk's control, it seems. I mean, doesn't that make sense for them to ask the judge to just guarantee the closing? Because they can say, look... Okay, he's yes. agreed again, but last time he agreed, he signed all the documents, he committed himself legally, he made it uh, a binding commitment, yeah. and then he backed out. So 
you yeah, know, what's to stop him from you doing know, that again? There are many voices in the market that thinks the, the judge will keep an eye on this. Remember, this is a chancery court case. Um, to Paul's point, though, the debt. I don't think any of us knew what Chantry Court was before this week. What, well, what is well, a Chantry Court? Well, it's just corporate M&A court. You know, she has the final say. It would have taken her months to reach a decision. But the debt, you know, the, the Wall Street bankers that Musk hired have to go to the asset managers and sell $12.5 billion of leveraged buyout debt that is much less attractive than it was in April when this whole thing was hatched. I don't, I mean, are you hearing anything from Wall Street, uh, Mendeep, about this capital structure here i, I kind of feel like he's got to go to get some more private equity here well the good thing is it's still you know when you compare to the debt to equity ratio 33 billion in equity and the remainder 12.5 billion in debt which is still relatively low typical buyouts like the citrix buyout that component it. is much higher so yeah, did anybody want a piece of the citrix buyout <laughs> people didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole agreed banks but, lost 600 million dollars on the citrix but that's, that's going to be a drop in a bucket compared to this, I think. Uh, Musk right. can still raise the money by selling his stock. He has $170 billion in Tesla stock. So he it can. And didn't we see from the tweets, or from the text messages, I should say, Ed, that there are a lot of very rich people that want to help him out with cash? Yeah, but again, what does this all come down to? You know, trust. This has been a bit of a roller coaster. And what we don't know from the court filings and disclosures as part of Discovery is what do all those rich, rich people think today, October 5th yep. at 11 a.m. Eastern? <laughs> Are they willing to get on board? Who knows? All right, guys. Great stuff. Appreciate you coming in here. Ed Ludlow, West Coast correspondent for Bloomberg News. He's been trolling around New York for the past few weeks. We have no idea what's going on. Uh, but we got Mandeep Singh. He's a Bloomberg uh, in Bloom BI industry. Uh, he covers all things technology. And, he's, and he's in the office quite often. Yeah, he's in the office quite often. He's one of the— We're so uh, proud of him. We are. So we always appreciate getting that roundtable. So, looks, we'll keep our eyes on this. Twitter, will it close? Boy, talk about in the public markets, 2022, just markets are down everywhere. And frozen uh, up, right? And I mean, frozen you don't up. see deals, you don't see nope. IPOs, you see ETF launches, but that's pretty Who much cares? it. I mean, so if Who cares? You, I love oh, ETF Oh, launches. you should have a television show about that I, on Mondays at 1 p.m. Wall do, Street time. Yes. So people go into the private market. We hear more and more about this private equity, private debt. Uh, we want to dive deeper into that biz, and we can do that with Randy Schwimmer. He's co-head of Senior Lending and Senior Managing Director at Churchill Asset Management. He joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Randy, it's been tough everywhere out there for investors. Talk to us about the private capital business that you've been so involved in. How's 2022 been for you guys? Well, for somebody who's been in it for a long, long time, it's interesting to actually see it. Uh, coming into its own. And right. part of the reason is because, as you guys have described, the, what the Fed is doing with qu quantitative tightening and interest rate hikes is creating a vacuum in the public markets. So there's no clearing price for public bonds right now, and the loans are both loans and bond market are kind of offline because nobody knows how much, if you're an issuer, how much is that going to cost me? So what they're doing is they're going to the private markets in large part because it's long-term capital that's been locked up for us to invest in companies and uh, other peers of ours. And we can go out with those companies and say, we actually can give you capital that's not volatile, that's not, that is going to be positive in terms of, for investors, interest rates going forward because it's a floating rate asset class and for senior debt. So that's why it's getting attention. And the other thing for investors is that because you've got a somewhat risk-off environment, leverage is coming down, covenants are tighter, and even more important, yields are higher right now for private credit. Are they? Uh, uh, do these borrowers 
uh, continue to agree to floating rates? I mean, I guess now you want it, right? Because as we're starting to get to what feels like the top, you want to get into a floating rate. Well, they, they want it because it's available capital, so they're willing yeah. to pay the price. Secondly, the unit tranche financings that were higher leverage, so six and seven times cash flows, are no longer in the market. And so from an investor perspective, at five times and even less, that's very attractive. Junior capital now is being put into these uh, capital structures to provide the issuer with a little bit more flexibility. Now, junior capital is a fixed rate instrument. So it's good for the issuer because they lock in their cost. And it's good for an investor because the fixed rate cost is it's higher. It's you know 10 to 12%. Even senior debt today is close to 10%. So it's very attractive mm. from an investor perspective. It's been so hot. I mean, Paul and I talked to so many um, fund managers who are starting to get into private markets and more and more we talk to private um, uh, capital managers what if we have a big recession what you know the the narrative has been short shallow recession until recently and right. now I think people are starting to worry about a longer term deeper recession right is that a problem well it is a problem for the overall markets because we don't know how that recession is going to unfold it's going to be like an 0809 seems unlikely because the bank capital uh, balance sheets are pretty strong right now. It doesn't feel like it's going to be an industry focus because we've had rolling recessions like that over time in retail and so forth. Um, what probably is going to happen is it's going to be an interest expense uh, coverage issue because as interest rates go up, companies that were highly levered, too highly levered in our view, are going to suffer because they're not going to be able to pay their interest. Because think about it, treasury rates were zero a year ago, they're 4% today. That And that's not changing, by the way. The Fed fight against inflation is going to be continuing this year and next year. And so you're going to see interest rates pretty high. So we think active management is critical. If you are in industries the way Churchill is, that are more defensive, like healthcare and, and technology and software, those businesses are going to go, do well typically through all cycles. But if you're in chemicals, gaming, energy, housing, those businesses are going to get hurt. And that's where you're going to see in a recession um, tighter interest and potentially defaults. We're already seeing some kickups in large cap defaults just because of that. All right. Let's just assume I'm a super wealthy person out there and I, want, I just bought a social media company and I need 12 or $13 billion in debt. Is there even a market out there for me? Well, I think there's there's probably a market, but the question is, what's the price okay. right now? And if you look at the public markets, and you're seeing it in spades over the last several days in the public equity markets, but we're seeing it all the time in the credit markets, what is the clearing price? And the clearing price is determined by the value. What is the value of the business and or the or the assets yep. and that's going to be driven a lot by what is the expectation for the cycle going forward you tell me where we're going to be with rates next year mm -hmm. and and somebody was asking me whether we're going to have a hard landing we're at barely a one percent growth rate right now we had negative growth in the first and second quarters yep. some folks are you know in bloomberg including are saying kind of a one percent it's hard to have a hard landing when you're going along at 1% growth, right? So what I think we see is sort of a sloppy sideways where companies are, are going to be continually trying to figure out, okay, where do I maneuver through these supply chain shortages? How do I keep my costs down in, a, in an era of inflation, food prices, energy prices continue to go up? And again, if you're, if you're in an active management scenario where um, you're having a manager look very carefully at the free cash flows of these businesses, a retail investor is going to say, okay, I'm comfortable with this 
manager because they've been through a downturn before. We've been around for 20 years. We've seen these ups and downs. Yep. You're dealing with, though, much more institutional investors. I mean, you're dealing with big numbers, right? Mm-hmm. You have big assets under management. Um, is there room for a smaller player in private capital? Is there room for retail investors to really get into it? Well, there's definitely room for retail investors. And in that case, it's really a question of education. What is private credit? How does it help? Defining it as an uncorrelated asset class. So it doesn't move with all the markets. So we don't care where the Dow is today or yesterday or tomorrow. What we care is, and when we look at our portfolio companies, how are those businesses going to go through a cycle? And then explaining it to investors, here's why you should be comfortable with our track record with very few losses over the last 20 years through multiple cycles and with very careful screening of companies to make sure that if we do hit a downturn, that those companies are going to be safe. Real quick, 30 seconds. What's a typical deal for you? What do you look for? So we look for uh, companies that are leaders in their field. We look for companies that are backed by the best private equity firms that we have close relationships with who do a lot of the thought leadership about, okay, why this sector and why this business? Um, And we look for structures that are conservative, fully secured by assets and cash flow, low leverage, um, pricing that is at a premium to the public markets, and second and third ways out. Because we all know that (laughs) things happen. You want to make sure there are ways out if something happens that's unexpected, and then there always is. All right, good stuff. Randy Schwimmer, co-head of Senior Lending and Senior Managing Director, Churchill Asset Management, talking about the private capital business. And again, as the public markets... And you've got a very popular newsletter as well. We should plug that because you have a big readership. And for this kind of a niche industry, right? I think it's a pretty big deal. Well, I appreciate that. TheLeadLeft.com, and it's free to any friends of uh, this group right here because right. we're friends of Bloomberg. Good stuff. We'd love to hear that. I ran Schrimmer joins us. We appreciate that. In studio, uh, he had the long walk across the street, so uh, we appreciate folks. They're out. They're getting out and about. How about that? Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Hurricane Ian has come and gone, but boy, the destruction in Florida and some other places is just extraordinary. Let's put some numbers around uh, the costs of the storm. We can do that with Matthew Palazzola. He's a senior analyst covering property and casualty insurance for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Matt, what's the the headline number in terms of the insured loss coming from this storm, which I, I think is one of the biggest ones? Sure, Paul. So it, it's shaping up to be perhaps the second largest insured hurricane loss ever. Uh, after and Katrina, probably. After Katrina. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's actually even bigger than the Twitter Elon deal at uh, <laughs> at around $60 billion of insured losses, which could imply that the economic losses would be over $100 billion. And who, who backs up the difference? Is that a Does the government take over that? Some of it's a government, a lot of infrastructure is not insured, so a lot of it would be that. Uh, A lot of it could be, uh, you know, uninsured properties, too. Yep. All right, so this was bad, but if it hit Tampa, I think we were talking to you a week or so ago, 
That could have been a much bigger number, but still, this is just huge. So we avoided the worst case, but okay. it's just it's just a less bad, bad case. Um, the, the direct hit on Tampa, people were talking about that kind of scenario costing insurance companies $100 billion, which might have cost $200 billion in economic losses. So um, what is the result here for the insurers? I mean... Um, they're obviously prepared for this kind of thing, but this is pretty big. So this is big. Um, this will hit the reinsurance market, which is insurance for insurance companies. Uh, a couple of things to note is that catastrophe losses, there haven't been a lot so far in the year, especially in the quarter. So they have budgets for these things. Uh, we, we have some analysis that says this could cost about 20% uh, of third quarter earnings on average for a selected group of companies, which is what we would say a, a, an earnings event, not a cap. Event. All right. So talk to us about just the insurance industry in, in Florida in general, because it kind of goes to the reinsurance business. I mean, it's not it. I thought the insurance infrastructure umbrella in place like Florida, which has so, uh, you know, they're so prone to these storms would be more robust, but it's really not, is it? No, it's, it's in trouble. So uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest insurer in the state is the state. So if okay. you can't get insurance from private insurance companies, you have to go to Citizens, which is the state fund, uh, and the policies enforcer have been growing and growing. And what's essentially happening is the reinsurance companies don't want to give reinsurance to the primary companies there, and a lot of the smaller ones have either left the state or actually gone insolvent. What does this mean for rates, for uh, premiums? So typically, the adage is you get a big storm loss and rates kind of spike up. Um, rates will be going up for homeowners insurance anyway. Uh, rates on the commercial side have been going up for a couple of years anyway. So I don't think that adage is going to hold necessarily. Well, but we're at a time when rates mm -hmm. rates are going up. Oh, well, you know, interest rates are going up, which helps the insurance companies on the investment income side, which theoretically means they don't need to raise prices as much, ah. but they still will. Don't get your hopes <laughs> yeah. up. What percentage of... You know, you drive down the street, you look at some of these homes. Are they all insured, or do people just say, it's too expensive, I'm just going to roll the dice? So if you have a mortgage, you need insurance, okay. right? And if yep. you're in a flood zone and you have a mortgage, you need flood insurance. I think what where the, the we're not going to do it is, is the take up on flood insurance outside of designated flood zones. So like if you looked at these counties down there, the take up rate, people who buy the flood insurance, is around 30%, and that's probably only the people who need to buy it. So the people who don't need to buy it don't buy it, and then they have a flood loss, and it's out of their and own And that's pocket. what these losses are, right? Because it was the surge that was the most damaging. So some of it is. When I say $60 billion, yeah. that is not including the flood. It might include some of the National Flood Insurance Program, but it's not. that's mostly not the, the flood losses, because a lot of that will be uninsured. So what's it like to be an insurance company these days with wildfires every day in the news if it's not wildfires it's rain and then the mud slides from the stuff that was burnt or hurricanes or superstorms i mean i guess they they just adjust their models on the risk premium and they do they go merrily along yeah paul if it, and if it's not that it's a pandemic and if it's right. not that it's a, a war in ukraine so uh you know look they're they're used to these things Non-correlated risks are, are, are tough, or massively correlated risks are also tough. So uh, they've been adapting to new things. But one thing that's interesting is there's a ton of stuff that just isn't insured. So it's, it's a little bit of an exciting time to be an insurance company yeah. because you know there's cyber, there's, there's tons of things, there's a lot of new opportunities. They'll be very weary to get into these things, but I think the ones who first move so, will be good. So away from this storm, when you're at a dinner party, and I'm sure you get a lot of invites as the 
insurance analysts for sure. BI. Of um, course. What are you excited about? What do you What do you talk to people about when 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 the woman next to you says, "Hey, what are some good opportunities out there? What do you recommend?" <laughs> um, you know the. The interesting companies, to be honest, are the, are the boring companies, right? So you look at the the, the bellwethers like a Chubb. Um, you know, it's just a company that it keeps growing every year, oh, keeps being Chubb. the best underwriter <laughs> every insurance. year. <laughs> and you know what? Another one that's interesting is AIG. They're they're working on a spinoff of their life insurance unit. Their valuation is much lower than the, than the group average, and I think their performance has been catching up to the group. So it's it's a nice kind of turnaround story. Chubb kicked me out. Did they? Yep. How come? They insured something for me, and they were great about it. Mm-hmm. Like, no questions asked. Here's the money. Thanks very much. And th- they were like, yeah, be, you're not coming back. They, they replaced <laughs> that, your, it. Your, your Picasso, and then they dropped you. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. All right, Matthew Palazzola, thanks so much uh, for joining us here in our studios here. Matthew Palazzola, he covers uh, property and casualty insurance. Uh, companies and industry for Bloomberg Intelligence. So he's been a person in demand. He always seems to be this time of year. So Matt, I guess so. earnings will be kicking off in a couple of weeks and it usually leads with the big investment banks. Um, and I think it's going to be a little dicey for these guys I, this quarter. The, the major earnings season. I'm focused on a, a number of other companies. I saw that Tilray is coming out with earnings on uh, Friday. That's the marijuana um, uh, brand company. And then a couple of other weed companies are coming out on Tuesday. I just find it so interesting. I've been talking to some analysts um, in the industry, those who are allowed to, because it's difficult to get coverage of this. And they're saying, like, these stocks are trading for two times sales, for five times earnings. I mean, they're priced for uh, some kind of drop in demand. But, of course... It's Demand only going, going to up. rise as more yeah. and more states go. All right, but let's talk Wall Street. We do that with Allison Williams, senior global banks and asset manager uh, analyst. I hired her as the bank's analyst, but her title keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. Paul's Allison, always taking credit for you, by the way. Yeah, always. Let's why t- tell us what we should be thinking about for these uh, earnings coming up for the big banks and investment banks that you follow. I mean, what's J.P. Morgan? What's Morgan Stanley? What are they going to be saying this quarter? So one thing we know is weak. Fees, okay. Right? Yep. So IPOs, as you know, are, are, have sort of completely gone away, Done, al- yeah. al- almost compared to record year last year. Fees are going to be down 50%. Wealth management fees are going to be weak. Asset management fees are going to be weak. Overdraft fees are going to be weak. So, wow. Okay. It's, but it's don't so we have a steepening? There. Do we have a steepening yield curve? Isn't that good for your so business? So steepening yield curve is good, but it does take a while um, to to sort of feed through. And I think. One of the things that we're going to be watching um, at the at the U.S. banks is loan growth and net interest margin expansion because we think there's going to be some slowing. Are uh, overdraft fees going to be weak because consumers have been so responsible in terms of watching uh, what they spend? I think because banks have been pressured to cut, eliminate. I will never understand this. Why do they? Uh, why do they that, bend? That was, that was her go-to issue. Yeah, but you know what? You only get charged an overdraft fee if you spend more money than you have in your account. Just don't do that. Right. Right. And I mean, it's, and it's actually isn't that part of know, fiscal responsibility that everyone should learn as a, a child? And a lot of it is opt-in service, right? You have to opt in for that service. So, so it is interesting that the continued scrutiny there, but. Um, but fees weak, as we said, um, loan growth slowing, and I think that's something that we've been worried about, right? Like everyone's excited about rates going up because it's good for the margin, but 
you need people to borrow, and as rates are going up, people right. are going to Now, we haven't had less. any of your, your big banks that you cover. Nobody's pre-announced yet, have they? No one's pre-announced, and I think that a lot of the, as I said, a lot of the bad news, as we know, always relates to the outlook, right? Like, we're, yep. not, we're not so worried about the last three months, but we're worried about what's ahead. So what, what are the trends in loan growth? What does that tell us about next year? And then provisions, that's still a wild card, yep. right? So the, in terms of the economy and in terms of the accounting at these banks, banks have to look ahead, reserve over the life of the loans. Um, and so there are some accounting and assumptions there. And as the assumptions get tougher, um, will there be some provisions? The, the exciting thing this uh, earnings go around is we have four big banks kicking off next Friday. Oh, there we go. So we'll have all the answers, if you will, sort of in one day. <laughs> Um, fixed income trading, the, the rate side of things is going to be very strong. So that's positive for, for people like JP Morgan and Citi when they kick off their results. Yep. Equity trading um, is probably going to be down from the prior year. Um, and again, we'll be looking to see those investment banking pipelines. Is there any potential to execute uh, that you know some of that pipeline going into year end? That's really going to depend on the markets. So you don't cover Credit Suisse. I do I take, cover credit. You do. Yeah. Okay, so w what's the deal here? Just um, assume have she they just everything. had uh, have they just had a lack of faith in um, market partners? Well, I'll say two things with the recent price action. Um, first, when a bank comes out and says they're evaluating their strategy, and that strategy may or may not include a capital raise, that's that's <laughs> never going to be good for the stock. Stocks hate uncertainty, and especially if that uncertainty. Um, you know, could relate to dilution, it's going to be hard for those shares to study. And then when you have markets like we've had, right, so Credit Suisse was very volatile on Monday. It was not a strong market. So that's obviously a contributor. Banks in general are under pressure. There's a lot of uncertainty about banks. European banks are under pressure. But they've so had to renege on deals they've made with clients, right? Apparently, they're lend out stock to clients, agreed to do it, contractually obligated, and then they realize they can't get that stock from other market participants, so they've had to cancel. Well, I'm, you know, Bloomberg News has reported that. I'm, I'm you know, less familiar with those intimate details in, inside the bank, but I would say that, you know, the, the bigger picture for Credit Suisse is risk management, right? So that's really what killed them last year. They had all these hits. They had all these hits. Um, they made some steps, potentially not aggressive enough. You know, sometimes hindsight is twenty twenty. If the market had been a great market this year, maybe maybe things would have been different. But they're not. They need to make deeper cuts. They've made uh, changes at the top. Yep. Um, and uh, you know. I guess that the tough thing's going to be what are they going to say yeah. to instill confidence? Right. Because whatever plan they come out with, that's also going to take Why time capital. and patience. But sooner, better and, than later. And capital. <laughs> yeah, and capital. Allison Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Allison Williams, Senior uh, Banks Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. One of the biggest, I think, themes in investing over the last decade plus has been ESG, environmental, social, and governance. It's attracted a lot of assets for investors that are looking to you know, focus on those issues in their investing. But I think it's getting a little, some pushback uh, recently. Um, Bloomberg has a story out on that. Uh, we welcome Priscilla Acevedo Roca, reporter for Bloomberg News. She's in our London office. Priscilla, talk to us about kind of the work you guys have been doing looking at this ESG investment picture. It seems like it, it may not be delivering some, some of the uh, benefits that it 
that some of the early folks were talking about. What, what did you find? Hey, um, good afternoon here from London. Thank you for having me. So uh, this story that we have out that is also in the markets magazine that is going to come out next week. Um, it's also the result of an investigation that we did for six months. We looked into companies that issue sustainability linked bonds in particular. So sustainability linked bonds are different from green, social and sustainable bonds because when I'll, I'll do like a short explanation, when a company comes to the market and they issue a label bond like green, social, sustainable, the money that they take from investors for that bond needs to be allocated for a specific project. With this sustainability linked bonds, the story is slightly different. So you take the money from investors, you can use that money for whatever you want, as long as you and you tie this this bond to a bigger like corporate climate goals. So you can take this money as long as you achieve other goals at a company level. And it turns out that when looking at those bonds that boomed in Europe over the past two, two three years, uh, most of those goals, they were irrelevant, they were weak, or they were already achieved. So the companies, they weren't like, they were achieving goals that were already achieved. So, yeah, so the penalties, like, they weren't, um, uh, the industry itself wasn't living up to its potential. I mean, of course. Why would you put yourself as a company <laughs> in a position where you're forced to pay millions of dollars in penalties? I mean, if you have a whole bunch of investors who are willing to give you money for cheap because they think you're going to do mm. something special, and then um, you set super easy goals for yourself, low hurdles that you clear with no problem, that's like a win-win for the company, right? Exactly. That's an absolute win-win. And those bonds, they were super subscribed by investors, especially in an environment of low interest rates like that we had in the past two years. That's now the part I don't the, get, Priscilla. Uh, yeah. Why? why? <laughs> this is the part I don't get. Um, I understand why Chanel uh, did the deal. I don't understand why the deal was oversubscribed. I mean, who wants to give them a better rate for pretending to be green? Well, so investors did at the time. The bond was super subscribed by investors. So when in, a, in an environment where interest rates are so low, everything that comes to the market is super subscribed, right? And also when you have in your portfolio a bond that is labeled, it gives the impression that you're doing good. So this bond is fulfilling uh, a sort of like uh, ESG investment mandate, but there's so much going on, so many bonds coming to the market that maybe investors or credit analysts, they didn't dig down into the numbers to look at this. So Priscilla, is there any sense that, you know, investors are kind of latching on to this idea that, hey, maybe this isn't such a great deal? Um, is there any pushback from the investment community? Yeah, so lately we've uh, we've started seeing the headlines coming. We've seen investors like Nuveen, Tiro, Price, that they said like criticizing those products, saying that they are not living up to their expectations, that companies are doing this and they took massive advantage of those conditions to bring those deals. So those criticism it is there and is becoming more and more evident. Did... Um central banks participate in these deals? Because I remember at the time the ECB mm. was all green as well, as was the EU. Yes. So 
the European Central Bank. So the market really started off in Europe at, at the end of 2019, but we had like one, two, three deals. The first one was a bond for Enel, the Italian utility company, which is, by the way, one of the biggest issuer of this product. Um, so the market started in, but it really kicked off in 2021. And that's because the ECB started buying those bonds. So sustainability-linked bonds started being eligible as collateral for the European Central Bank from then. And since then, because the Central Bank was able to participate in those sales, they boomed. It's amazing. It's almost company. like, yeah. I mean, a conspiracy theorist <laughs> would say that the board at Chanel knows some people on the ECB and convinced them to do this to get them easier financing. Um, but I guess those days are gone, right? The pool of investors, you write, has shrunk and central banks clearly mm -hmm. are pulling back. Yes, that's right. And now there's also more and more attention into those deals and people are looking at the documentation because the market now has evolved. We have uh, because it, it was new, right? In 2019, not a lot of people knew what they are, they, what they were looking at. So now there's more base, there's more point of comparisons. So you can go into the material, into the documentation of such bonds and actually see what they're all about. And investigators are looking into it <laughs> even beyond you, right? I mean, uh, courts. Well, uh, that's what we hope. That's what we hope. So far, uh, the regulators haven't gone down in Europe to the root of looking at the ambitiousness of the goals, but we could only hope that as more and more deals come to the market and investors do more of the work, we start seeing that they're not achieving the goals that are actually relevant to climate and to climate change and to addressing the the right. the proposed goals. All right, Priscilla, and, you know? Yep. All right, Priscilla. No, I was going to say. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, out of like all the deals that we've uh, that we've analyzed, there's not a single bond that pays more than 1% penalty if they fail to achieve. So this is not relevant for a company at all. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting stuff. Priscilla Acevedo Roca, reporter for Bloomberg News, talking about the ESG investing. So I'm finally getting some pushback on maybe some of the initial promises uh, that were made by folks in the ESG community. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.